Thank you, Bill. See, am I on? There I am. We had to do a microphone switch. Thank you for that special music. What a beautiful song with the four of you singing today. And I know you put a lot of work and practice into that, and we thank you for it. It's such a meaningful song, followed by some just wonderful, wonderful worship songs about the name of Jesus, and it is well with my soul. What a great time of worship. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 1, 26 through 38, Luke 1, 26 through 38. And we're going to continue just kind of looking at the Christmas story. And as we look at the Christmas story, I wonder, what if Mary said no? You ever think about that? I mean, the angel comes before her and the angel says, you've been chosen by God. And we're going to get into this here in just a moment. And the angel says, blessed are you among women. You're going to bear the savior of the world. What if Mary said no? What if Mary said, no, not interested? You found the wrong woman. Look, I'm only 13. I want to live my life. I'm going to have some fun. I'm a, I'm a teenager. They really didn't have teenagers back then, by the way. They didn't even have teenagers 100 years ago. I mean, they were teenagers, but it wasn't a social class for McDonald's to market to and stuff. By the way, that was genius of McDonald's. Marketing to kids, a Happy Meal? I still like McDonald's, all because of Happy Meals. There's also a genius of Elder Beerman to invent Santa Claus, but that's another topic. Anyways, what if Mary said no? And then the question is, could Mary say no? I should back up because I said something unplanned, and when I do that, I regret it later on. Elder Beerman did not invent Santa Claus. He was St. Nicholas in about the 4th century. He was at the Council of Nicaea, and after that, he did actually deliver toys to, to, to children. He really did. But he was at the Council of Nicaea, which was about the Arian controversy. Look it up on Wikipedia later. And actually, legend has it, he got so upset with Arian and his heresy, they punched him right in the face. He went to jail for it, but eventually Constantine freed him and he became Santa Claus as we know him today. And then in the mid-1800s, the stores made this big marketing thing about it. It's really cool. So anyways, back to Mary, back to what I plan to say. Could Mary have said no? If Mary said no, what would have happened at Bethlehem? As you know, Mary was the mother of Jesus. And this, this event really did happen. This narrative, this Bible story, it really did happen. These are narratives in the Bible, and certainly we live in a world where they start to deny the scriptures, compromise them. I was listening to Dr. Idelnik yesterday on Open Line on Moody Radio. I highly commend Open Line and Moody Radio to, to all of you. And, and Dr. Idelnik was talking about uh, leading a, a tour through Israel, because he does that often. And the tour guide, one tour guide, they only used once, was talking about the slaughter of the innocents. You know, it's Matthew chapter 2. You know, Herod decided to kill or have slaughtered every child under two years old. And the tour guide said, of course we know this didn't happen. And Dr. Idelnik said, how do you know it didn't happen? And she said, well, Josephus didn't record it. Josephus was a Jewish historian in the first century. Well, Jewish wrote about Jesus, Jesus G, G, Josephus didn't record the resurrection. Does that mean it didn't happen? And in case you wonder about some of the, these things, Bethlehem was a tiny little village. So the slaughter of the innocents really was not, you know, thousands upon thousands. Besides that, that was nothing compared to the other atrocities Herod committed. Although it was pretty bad. Somebody said it'd be better to be Herod's pig than Herod's child. 
He was a pretty, pretty wicked, evil guy. These are stories that really did happen. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the, the event did happen. Mary was told that she was to give birth to the Christ child. And you know what? She didn't even argue. Now, you may ask, why would she argue? Well, although it was an honor for her, Mary did face a lot of shame, a lot of trouble for the virgin birth. And so we're going to look at Luke 1, 26 through 38. And in this passage, we will see that Mary is told about Jesus' birth. I want you to notice the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. I want you to notice Mary's obedience, Mary's obedience. Two weeks ago, we began a series focusing on the angelic narratives in Luke chapter 1. The angelic narratives in Luke chapter 1. And I don't want to focus so much on the angel that we miss the overall narrative. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary just like the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer's father. These are like back-to-back accounts, so there's about six months at least in between them because the mother of John the Baptist, Elizabeth, is six months pregnant by this time. So I picture the angel Gabriel talking to Zechariah, giving the message, and then saying, got to go now, got my next appointment with Mary, the mother of Jesus. But it really didn't happen that way. He didn't have to like rush off. Gabriel was out doing the Lord's work. Gabriel's name means the greatness of God. The greatness of God. He appears in Daniel chapter 9 and 11 as well. It seems like when, when there's something important that God wants to do, He sends Gabriel. It's pretty cool. To review, what does the word angel mean? Anyone? Messenger, Messenger, right? It's the Hebrew word. Anyone? You guys are reading the notes. It doesn't matter. Moloch. It's the Hebrew word Moloch. Isn't that a cool Hebrew word? You learn Hebrew, you can really learn some cool words. And and so Moloch, and it simply means messenger, and it can refer to a human messenger like in 1 Kings 19.2 or a divine messenger like in Genesis chapter 28 verse 12. The basic meaning of the word is one who is sent, one who is sent with a divine message, one who is sent with a divine commission from God. The Hebrew word is found 103 times in the Old Testament, 103 times. The Greek word angelos, angelos, occurs 175 times in the New Testament. And it means similar, messenger. However, the Greek word is only used six times having to do with with humans. And the rest of those times, 168 times that would be, having to do with angels. The word angelos is similar to the Hebrew word moloch. It also means messenger who speaks and acts in the place of the one who has sent him. They're messengers. And next week, we're going to look at the angels coming to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. But for today, we'll look at the angelic encounter of Gabriel with Mary. So in verses 26 through 29 here, we see Mary being greeted by Gabriel. Read with me uh, Luke 1, 26 through 29. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. Some translations say perplexed at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
Let's talk about this for a few moments before we move on. Notice a passage begins by saying, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Again, that's how we know this is at least six months six month, months since the angel Gabriel had visited John the Baptizer's father. So the angel Gabriel was on break or doing whatever the Lord called him to do next. We don't know. Maybe he was fighting off demons. Maybe he was, I don't know. Maybe he was in today's day. I don't know. But there's been six months since his last, uh, the time the scriptures wrote about him going before Zechariah. So this is connecting the narrative with the previous narrative. Now the text says that Gabriel was sent to Nazareth in Galilee. So we got some geography here. Nazareth was a city, a very small city. Galilee was a greater area. Nazareth had about 1,600 to 2,000 people at this time. 1,600 to 2,000 people. So imagine living in a little village with 1,600 to 2,000 people. That's how many people lived in Nazareth. Dr. Adelnik, who's, who's on Moody Radio and teaches at Moody Bible Institute and edited the Moody Bible Commentary as well as many other books, he has shared before, he said, Nazareth was the wrong side of the tracks. It was a poor area, an area looked down upon. Isn't it interesting that God chooses the nobodies? God chooses the area looked down upon. Gabriel and Michael are the only angels in the New Testament. These are the most popular, popular angels in Jewish lore. Now, the angel comes to a virgin who was engaged or, or pledged to be married to Joseph. The Bible says that Joseph was a descendant of David because, because Joseph was, was of David's line and Jesus would be his legal son. Jesus could qualify as belonging to David's royal house. Now, actually, Joseph and Mary were both descendants of David, but they were descended through different people. In Matthew chapter 1, focuses on, on, on Joseph's ancestry. And Luke chapter 3 focuses on Mary's ancestry. And Matthew chapter 1 takes Joseph's ancestry all the way back to Abraham. And Luke chapter 3 focuses Mary's ancestry, traces Mary's ancestry all the way back to Adam and Eve. And we would wonder why. Why would Luke take Mary's ancestry all the way back to Adam and Eve while Matthew only goes to Abraham? Was Luke just trying to one-up? I mean, he was like, hmm, Matthew can take it back to Abraham. Watch this. Here, hold my water. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to beat, I want to beat Matthew. No, it's not that. <laughs> Matthew was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, Jewish listeners, Jewish readers. So Matthew is saying, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Luke was writing to Gentiles. So Luke was saying, we're going to go back to Adam and Eve. And I want to show you that Jesus is a savior of everyone. Jesus is the savior of the whole world. Jesus is the savior of every tribe, tongue, and nationality. And because Jesus was of David's royal line, Jesus, Jesus is part of David's royal house. The New American Commentary tells us that in Judaism, virgins, virgins, that's what Mary was, you know, were young maidens, usually 14 years old or younger. I'll read more about that in a moment. Though Dr. Adonik, who does specialize in Jewish studies, he thinks Mary was more like 16 or 17 years old. Either way, she's a very young woman. And, and, and Gabriel greets Mary by saying that she is highly favored and the Lord is with her. 
How often do you greet someone like that? I mean, go to greet somebody later and say, hi, you're a highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was shocked, right? I mean, she's never, she's perplexed. She doesn't know what type of greeting this is. This is. You know, it's interesting that Mary's shocked about that. And here in a moment, the angel will tell her, you don't need to be afraid. But I've never seen an angel. Now, maybe some of you have, but I'm willing to bargain. I'm not a betting person. I did that when I was like 19 playing poker with a friend. Not a good idea. Lost money. Not a good idea. Don't do that, okay? That's not a good idea. But if I was a betting person, I would, or I would argue that... Any of you who maybe believe you saw an angel did not see an angel in an angelic form. Like Hebrews 13 says, to entertain strangers because you could be entertaining angels and not know it. That would be angels taking the form of a human being. Mary is seeing an angel who looked like an angel. Same thing as Zacharias. They're seeing the warrior angel. And I would think this is quite terrifying. I mean, the angels always come before people and they say, do not fear. Angels were warriors. They were the Lord's messengers. They were also the Lord's warriors. And here's a woman, 13, 14 years old, maybe at the oldest, 16, 17. And a 16, 17-year-old, even a 14, 13-year-old would be way, way, way more mature than a, that age today. But still, this has got to be terrifying. And, and, and then in addition to seeing an angel like that, the angel gives her this greeting, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. So in verses 30 through 33, we see Gabriel, it, Gabriel's going to explain why she is favored. She's wondering, why am I favored? Well, the angel's going to tell her. Look at this. Let's read verses 30 through 33. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Wow. Notice the angel starts by saying, do not be afraid. I like this because this verse shows, like I said, the angels are warriors. And this angel appears out of thin air and gives this greeting to Mary. And the angel says, do not be afraid. Now, the angel tells her why she is favored. The angel tells her the message about the Messiah. Now, I realize that my questions at the beginning of the sermon were not fair. I mean, would God choose Mary if she would have said no? I mean, he chose Jonah. And Jonah did not only say no, Jonah tried to go the other way. So we really can't answer that. But why did God choose her? You know, she was favored by God. That's what the angel says. You are highly favored. I wonder, was she such a respectful, pious young lady that she was favored? Or does favor simply mean that God is going to bestow on her this blessing of being the mother to the Christ child? This could be either or both. I think it's both. I think she was a very pious young lady, a very honorable young lady, so God chose her. And I also think it was quite an honor to be the mother of the Christ child. If you read later on, the end of Luke 2, there's the prophecy of, of Anna and Simeon. And I think it's Anna that says, he will pierce your soul. And she will be at the cross. 
You know that amazing, beautiful song, Mary, did you know? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Then the angel tells her that she will conceive and give birth to a son and call him Jesus. Look at that. She is told that she will become pregnant. That's prophetic. That's prophetic. It hasn't happened yet. In verse 34, she says that she's still a virgin. So this is definitely prophetic, okay? She is told that the baby will be a boy. Again, this is prophetic. She doesn't even know she's pregnant. And you can't know the gender of the baby until about 16 weeks. Uh, Yet the angel knows. She's told what to name the baby. So she's told three prophetic messages right there. And notice the mercy of God. Suppose, let's just think outside the box here. Suppose that God had this plan unfold but did not tell Mary about it. Or suppose that God just told Mary a little bit. You're going to be pregnant. He's going to be the Messiah. Name him Jesus. Done. That's not what happens. The Gabriel answers Mary's questions. This is all the great mercy of God. God has a plan and God tells Mary about it. God tells Mary she will be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is not unusual. The scriptures teach that God controls the womb. That have with Abraham. And in and, and, and the account of Abraham, God even told Abraham what to name the promised child, Isaac, which means laughs, laughter. In Luke, 5, uh, Luke 1, 5 through 25, this happened with John the Baptist's father. This is not unusual. But this is the first and only time in the Bible we see a virgin birth. It's most likely, I think it's, true this is the only time i know of in history we see a virgin birth now mary had to be thinking what am i going to tell my fiance she's engaged to be married to joseph now some of you are thinking who cares she's not even married but engaged she's not married but engaged but a jewish engagement ceremony had an actual ceremony and you actually had to have a a a divorce Uh, like a formal divorce to break it off. This was a big deal to be engaged. Like there was, there was money exchange, a dowry, and it, to break that engagement would be a big deal. And also for Mary to look like somebody who committed adultery, Joseph could have Mary led out into the center of the village. There's a Jewish writing called the Mishnah, which had many Jewish traditions written together. It was written the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, and tells they would let her hair down, which is shameful. They would strip her to show shame. And by Jewish law, they could actually stone her. Mary has to be thinking about all these things. She has to be thinking, what will I tell my parents? When I was in a college class and we dealt with this subject, you know, dealing with college students, the professor laid it out there and said, you know, what if you go home and say I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit? I mean, you, what? she's got to be thinking about these. She has to be thinking, what will the neighbors think? What does it feel like to, be, to, be, to die by stoning? We don't know Mary's thoughts, but we do know that she doesn't even argue. She's totally obedient. Gabriel, Gabriel uh, does tell Mary about Jesus. He will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That's a major verse. He is going to have the throne of David. There's something called the Davidic covenant. And that's the case where God tells David in 1 Samuel 7 that, that David's kingdom will, ne- will never end. And you know how that comes to pass? It comes to pass through Jesus. David would die. Later, his son Solomon would die. After Solomon dies, his sons, David's grandchildren, divide the kingdom and they all died. Jesus 
unites the ministries of prophet, priest, and king, and he never dies. Of Jesus' kingdom, it will never end. Mary is told that her son will reign forever. That's a lot of responsibility. She is to be the mother of the future eternal king of Israel. Now look at verses 34 through 35. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I like how R.C. Sproul says it. He says, Mary is saying, I may not be a biologist, Mr. Angel, but I know how babies come. She knew natural law. That's called natural law. You drop something, it falls, it's the ground. That's natural law. She knew how this biology works. Historically, people called miracles going against natural law. This is a miraculous virgin birth. The angel then explains that the Holy Spirit will come upon her. The power of the Most High, which is God, will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, there are some in churches for the last hundred years who deny miracles. And part of that, they deny the virgin birth. They start to compromise scripture. And when I look at that, I think if you deny the virgin birth, you might as well deny the rest of the miracles in the Bible. Deny the resurrection. Deny uh, all the different miracles in the Bible. Deny your salvation. I want to take just a moment to share something that Kevin DeYoung wrote about this. He writes, many have objected to the virgin birth because they see it as a typical bit of pagan mythologizing, mythologizing. Mithraism had a virgin birth. Christianity had a virgin birth. They are all just fables. Now, you will hear about that if you turn on the TV at night. If you read anything, they'll say Christians just copied this off of other pagan myths. And Kevin DeYoung gives a few points about this, but in summary... It's really the other way around. The pagan myths came after the birth of Jesus. Some would say even Star Wars has a virgin birth. This popular argument sounds plausible at first glance, but there are a number of problems with it. Number one, the assumption that there was a prototypical God-man who had certain titles, did certain miracles, was born of a virgin, saved people, and then got resurrected is not well-founded. In fact, no such prototypical hero existed before the rise of Christianity. That's what Kevin DeYoung is saying. There's no case of this besides Christianity before Christianity. Number two. So number one, this is not written about before Christianity. Number two, it would have been unthinkable for a Jewish sect, which is what Christianity uh, was initially, to try to win new converts by adding pagan elements to their gospel stories. A Jewish sect would not try to win converts by adding pagan elements. That wouldn't happen. Number three, the supposed virgin birth parallels are not convincing. Consider some of the usual suspects. Okay, so some would say there are virgin birth parallels. Well, here are some of the usual suspects. Number one, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. His most reliable ancient biographer Several centuries after his death, so Alexander the Great died in the 4th century BC, and his most reliable ancient biographer, which is several centuries after his death, he makes no mention of a virgin birth. 
Besides, a story that began to circulate after the rise of Christianity is about an unusual conception, but not a virgin birth. Alexander's parents were already married when he was born. Another one, Dionysus. Dionysus. That's it. Like so many of the pagan parallels, he was born when a god, in this case Zeus, disguised himself as a human and impregnated a human princess. This is not a virgin birth and not like the Holy Spirit's role we read about in the Gospels. Another one, Mithra. Mithra, the, four, the third of the usual suspects. He's a popular parallel. But he was born of a rock, not a virgin. Moreover, the call to Mithra in the Roman Empire dates to after, after the time of Christ. So any dependence is Mithraism on Christianity and not the other way around. Number four, Buddha. His mother dreamed that Buddha entered her in the form of a white elephant. But this story does not appear until five centuries after Buddha's death. And she was already married. None of these are a virgin birth like we see in Christianity. And by the way, there's another proof of Christianity right here. All the Gospels were written and recorded within 30 or 40 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They're all so recent. There are so many witnesses. So in short, the so-called parallels always occur well after, well after the life in question and well into the Christian era. And they're not really stories of virginal conceptions. God created the womb. God can surely provide the baby. In verses 36 through 37, we see the A miracle has already been performed. Look at verses 36 and 37. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is a sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So a miracle has already been performed. A miracle that this woman who's past the age of childbearing, who is called barren, is pregnant. And not just a little bit pregnant, in the sixth month pregnant. Nothing will be impossible with God. Do you ever doubt God? Do you find it hard to believe in the virgin birth? Do you find it hard to believe that Jesus would later turn water into wine, John chapter 2, even the best of wine? Do you find it hard to believe that Jesus would heal many people? Do you find it hard to believe that Jesus fed 5,000? Do you find it hard to believe that Jesus raised a dead man to life? He would have already been decaying in the grave. Do you find it hard to believe that Jesus was resurrected and still lives? Do you find it hard to believe that, anything, that any of these things happen? The angel tells Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. God can do all things. I'm convinced that we all struggle with faith sometimes, even pastors. But why do we want to believe in such a little God? Listen, if he is God, he must be greater than we are. God created the womb. God created the human being. God created the universe, everything we see and don't see. God can do this. We can trust him. He's faithful and he can save us from our sins and he has. In verse 38, we see Mary's obedience. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I love that. Mary does not say, she does not say, well, Gabriel, I really, really, really thank you. I thank you for considering me for this task. 
I mean, like, I know that I'm a true and godly young lady and that it is likely that's why you chose me. But, you know, I like, I'm not up for this. I mean, I'm still young and I don't want the public humiliation. Well, just ask someone else. Mary doesn't do that. No, Mary accepts. Now, could Mary say no? We can't answer that, but we do know what she says. She says, I am the Lord's servant. Let me ask you right now, is there something God's calling you to that you're resisting? God calls us all to wonderful, amazing, great ministries, whether we believe it or not. We never know the ministry of our day-to-day life and the impact, whether it's caring for a baby or caring for a loved one or caring for the the elderly or caring for the sick or whether it's uh, helping out with administrative things behind the scenes or whether it's uh, whatever it might be. We never know the gospel impact. But we do know Mary was looked down upon her whole life. She didn't question it. She questioned the mechanics. How is this gonna happen? That's it. How is your obedience? At a certain children's hospital, a boy gained, so this is a children's hospital, and a boy, a patient, gained a reputation for wreaking havoc with the nurses and staff. One day, a visitor who knew about his terrorizing nature made him a deal. The visitor said, if you're good for a week, she said, I will give you a dime the next time I see you. A week later, the, the visitor came, and the visitor sees the boy and says, I'm not going to ask the nurses and staff if you were good. I'm going to ask you, and you can just tell me, were you good for a week? Do you deserve the dime? The little boy hides behind the sheets and then looks up a little bit and says, can you give me a penny? (laughs) The little boy was a little bit obedient. How is our obedience? God may not be calling you to give birth to a son, which is good if you're a man because that would be even a greater miracle. But maybe God is calling you to buy Christmas presents for a neighbor's children. Are you resisting something God is calling you to do? Maybe God wants you to apologize to someone you offended this past week. Be obedient. Be God's servant as Mary was. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you so much for this example of Mary. And it's more than an example because this really did happen. We know it's true. And then we thank you, Lord God, for the greater impact that because of Mary's obedience, our Savior came into the world. Jesus, you lived amongst us for 33 years, lived in total humility, died in the cross for our sins and rose again. We thank you, Lord God. Oh, Lord God, we see Mary's great obedience and we know that there are truly struggles in this life. And I'm sure that some here might think it's, it's, it's easier to be obedient to a great task when the angel Gabriel is standing right in front of you. And we don't know whether that's the case or not. But we do have the Holy Spirit within us and Mary did not have the Holy Spirit at that point, if she did at all. Help us, Lord God, walking by the Holy Spirit, knowing we are not alone. We are not alone because God dwells within us, Emmanuel. In Jesus' name, amen.